through, uh, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. When we come to the when we come to the Gospel of John, I think it's incumbent upon us to remember what it is the Gospel of John is being written for. Because John is not just writing a historical account of what happened in the life of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. That would be an interesting document, but it would be a, a faultful one. But the reality is that John is not writing to simply inform us about the realities about Jesus, though he does indeed include the realities about Jesus. He's writing specifically to interact with his readers, both Christian and skeptic alike. He's writing to interact with those who will read this, that they may believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and live. You may say, I'm a Christian. What's the point of studying that? I already believe on Jesus and I have life promised to me. Correct. What is the whole duty of the Christian? But to have their faith increased in Christ all the more. Do you not know parts of your heart that are filled with unbelief? I know parts of mine that are. Things that I would prefer to keep, to hold, to have confidence in myself about, I don't need Christ for, right? This is one of the great things about John is he is not going to allow us to have those places unchallenged in us. If I was honest with myself, I would think that I would imagine that my faith would have been stronger if it had started by witnessing a miracle. Yet John is going to teach us on that point. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. Faith does not come by observation. Faith does not come by recognition. Faith does not even come by knowing things about Jesus. What does James tell us about the demon's knowledge? They know from firsthand experience that God is one. And the most that it can do to them is make them tremble, which is more than can be said for any human. In our self-righteousness and in our self-confidence, we would actually take pride out of knowledge of who God is. Knowledge simply will puff up in such a person. Faith does not come by such things. John will remind us faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And thus it is the testimony, the teachings of Christ. Thus it is the words of Christ that we must depend upon. Thus it is Christ's person that we must worship, focus on, and direct all of our intention upon. And you say, why do we, why do, we do this? Why walk through the gospel of John? Folks, what we have in our personal life must bear out in the church. And I don't mean must as in we have to try for it. No, who we are will show up in the gathered assembly. It will manifest itself in what we love and what we desire. And so if we put it out to our minds, what is it that we desire as a church? What is it we want five years from now? 10, 20, 50 200 years from now, what do we want? That will reveal a great deal about our hearts, both individual and corporate. And may I suggest to you that our focus is largely increased to Christ, 
when we hear his words, when we interact with what he expresses about himself, we think, for instance, that there will be things in this life that will satisfy, maybe election days that will go our way instead of our opponent's way. These things will not satisfy. They never will. You say, well, what about preserving my freedoms? Freedoms can be taken away. Promises that don't satisfy in the long term. There are promises that do satisfy. There is a satisfaction from knowing Christ as the bread that came from heaven that we do not have from anything in this world. There's no food. There's no toy. There's no possession. There's no material. There's no home. There's no status. There's no job. There's no income that can give that kind of satisfaction that is found in Christ. John will force us to interact with these realities. And he's going to force us to see them in him, not in us. You ever sit next to somebody during a sermon and when something bad is said about something, you kind of look at them and go, you know, that kind of reminds me about you. (laughs) One of the things about John is he's going to say, that's going to be your reaction to hearing the words of Christ. You are going to see him don on a loincloth and wash nasty feet in the upper room right before he institutes the Lord's Supper. And you're going to be faced with the reality that if you were in the same situation, you would be the one having your feet washed. And it's going to humble us. And it's going to make us think about things from his perspective when he says, this is how you lead and serve one another. It must come from a place of humility, even with one who is equal with God. That's where we start this day. John chapter 5, I want you to stand in honor of God and his word. Verses 16 to 24. Let us be challenged by our Lord Christ. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them and said, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. So whatever the father does, excuse me, for whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Let's thank God. Our Father, we are grateful for a passage like this. What promises are found here? What challenges to our own mindsets? What things we cannot verify but simply have to take on your promised word? We thank you that that is actually a more sure foundation than our own eyes. We are grateful to hear of such things from the mouth of Christ. We pray that it work in us a desire to trust in him more 
that the way we see our present, our past, and our future are defined by him, his sacrifice, his presence, and his promise. Father, we pray these things. We know that inside our hearts there are desires aplenty, and so many of them distract us from desiring you. We pray that those desires be smashed down, and that our desire for you and your promised word, that our desire for your glory and your honor, that our desire to be humble in the sight of you, fill our vision. Though it may lead to sufferings and frustrations aplenty, it is worth it for our sufferings cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed to us one day. Father, teach us what worthy things are. We pray in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Obviously, we have a beast of a passage here, and one of those that is going to challenge some of the most closely held assumptions that we may have. If you think it is hard to read a passage like this, imagine hearing this in person. Just sit yourself there. You've grown up in a Jewish world. You've grown up where the Sabbath was forbidden for you to do X amount of things on it. You could have to count your steps because the Sabbath day's journey was only so long. After that, you were breaking the law of God. You had to tithe certain things, counted, even down to the minutest herb. You had a responsibility to interact with the Lord in Jerusalem, and here all of a sudden a rabbi comes along saying, sure, that is where it is now, but soon it won't be. And who heals a man on the Sabbath and tells him to pick up his bed, violate the rules of Jerusalem, and go home. And you're looking at all of the Pharisees that will come out and challenge him, and you just kind of look at them and going, they're right. We're not supposed to be working on the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment. Why is he breaking it? Interesting question. The reality is, if Jesus was just a man, he is breaking the Sabbath here, isn't he? If he was just a man, and he was not doing something good on the Sabbath, if he was desiring to fulfill just that part. See, that's the part, excuse me, that's the part of this that we usually miss. The Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. Man was not made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man to give him a rest from all his work. Look at nature. Nature does not rest on the Sabbath. It does not take a day off every week doesn't work like that. But God so built that into the way he created the world that it's contingent upon us to learn from that. But that was an example that God saved specifically for the week of creation, even in the book of Exodus. Why is it that the Sabbath day was instituted? It wasn't just because God was coming up with something new. No, he says, this is the reason why, is because God made the world, the heavens and the earth, in six days and in all of the things that are in them, and then on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, we follow that same pattern. Let me ask you a question. A week after that first day of rest, was God resting again? Did you ever think about that? When Adam was seven days old, was God in a hammock in the Garden of Eden just kicking back? Was God observing the Sabbath in heaven? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Did you realize the Bible actually answers that question? 
Jesus here tells us about it. Look at what he says here. Verse 16, this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them about him working on the Sabbath. And he says what? My father is working until now. Unbroken work. From the day after that first Sabbath, even to this day right now, there's not a single time God has rested outside of that first rest. And what does he say? I am also working. It's an eternal present tense. That seventh day of creation was set aside as a pattern for just humans. But God cannot take off a day, nor does he need a day of rest once a week. And so for Jesus to answer this back, he is explaining to them, if I was merely a man, this would be problematic, but I'm not. God cannot take time off and expect somehow that the world will just keep working. That's not how he made the creation. He made it so that it is sustained by Christ. It is why the Jews were persecuting him. It is why John opens the Gospel of John by saying, in him, all things were created. There was not a single thing that was made that wasn't made through the word, through the son, through Jesus himself. My father is working until now, and so am I. I am working. And the Jews immediately heard that the ramifications of that are not that you serve God who doesn't stop working, therefore you don't have to. It is that you are making yourself, you're making a statement about yourself that is even worse than breaking the Sabbath. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. His message was not being lost on his hearers. For him to say such a thing means it is not that I am just a man from God, as Nicodemus recognized. It is not just that I am the Messiah that the woman at the well recognized. It is not just that I am a good man that the official recognized in the previous chapter. It is not just a stranger who has a miraculous ability and you don't even know his name like the man in the pool of Siloam. No. Now we have Jesus stating outright, my father is working till now and I am working. I have constantly been working ever since the beginning of creation. And what is it now? This Sabbath, no different than all the others. Why was it the Jews were seeking to kill him? Because if he was just a man, he deserves to die. Not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but he is calling himself God. Unequivocally, expressing it in terms of eternal presence, he is saying, I am. If he is calling God his father, then he is calling himself God. You say, that is an interesting thing. How exactly does that work? We have two gods here? No. Here, unfortunately, most of the ways that Christians tend to interact with the nature of the Trinity is to assume that God kind of just shows up in different modes at certain points. Or maybe we'll think that there's kind of three gods that just work in concert with one another. No. So let me give us a little bit of a primer on the doctrine of the Trinity before we go through this. There is one God. Say it with me. There is one God. Okay. Is that the end of the story? No. There is one God. Christian, don't ever give on that point. There are not three gods in hierarchy. There are not two gods. 
They're not two gods and a force. No, no, no. There's one God. And that one God, that one being, that one what, that is God, has three persons. The Father, you don't even have to do it in that order, but you can. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. All three, equal God, equal eternal, equal existing. And so every one of the three of them is God, but there is one God. Some think that that is a contradiction of terms. There's three gods and there's one God. No, no, no. Three persons in one being. If that's hard and that kind of breaks the brain a bit, the way I've sought to try to explain it is when we run into a singular being, it's usually accompanied by a singular person, right? If I run into Shane, Shane, how many persons is Shane? Just one, right? The same if I see Chris or if I see Rick. I have my doubts about Ralph, but... <laughs> but we see one being with one person. And that's not surprising to us. We expect that. And so we automatically extrapolate that to God and we must understand God's not like us. Doesn't work like that. And he's built certain things into his creation to demonstrate how limited we are. Believe it or not, you've run into things that have being but no person. You're sitting in some of them. Chairs have being, have existence. How many persons? Zero. Same with this pulpit. One being. It's a pulpit. It exists. It is. It exists. No persons. There's no person in this Uncle Wood. God is higher and grander and far beyond our creation, whereby we see one being, three persons, something we see nowhere else in all of creation. And with that trinity of personhood, there is a unity of focus, purpose, desire, and carrying out a promise that all three members of the trinity are always involved with on all fronts. But the reality is that each of the three persons carries out different aspects of salvation and the management of this world. The Father, creator of heaven and earth. The Son, through which all things were created. The Holy Spirit, who gives life to all things. These are the roles. These are the persons. And so when Jesus is walking around in his incarnate form, we're, we're like eight steps away from how it was in the eternal past, but we have to understand Jesus here is the Son of God incarnate. He's not just a man. If he's just a man, they should have killed him, and he would have stayed in the grave, and we would have his grave to this day. But since he's God, him breaking the Sabbath makes perfect sense because God does not take time off of managing this world. It is his word that not only created, but also sustains all things. And so when he says, my father is working until now, and I am working, he is expressing that he is directly God, and that if he stopped working for a moment, the cosmos itself would shred to pieces. That is the basis of understanding the sustaining power of the Son of God himself. And so is what is classically called the second person of the Trinity, this God the Son is in human form in Jesus of Nazareth. What is he saying? He is saying, I am God. And for those who think that Jesus never said that simply because he didn't put it in words of that order, 
do not understand what he is saying here. When he is expressing that his father is working till now and I am working, not only does he make himself equal with God, what does he do next? He expresses his own authority and what he is not only capable of doing, but what he is doing. And this will have ramifications for the life of the church. Watch this. Verse 19, so Jesus said to them, now that's an interesting thing. It starts off with a therefore or a so. It's a follow-up. They assume that what he's saying is he is making himself equal with God. And so he answers them this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son, he refers to himself, can do nothing of his own accord. That's not the role of the son. The role of the son is to do the will of the father. That doesn't mean they have different wills. It means that's the role. The son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. And you say, well, that seems like a lower rank in the Trinity. Oh, no, no, no. He clarifies, for whatever the father does, he shows the son. It is a statement of roles. It is not a statement of hierarchy. Whatever the father does that the, uh, uh, excuse me, For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. In other words, there is a unification between the Father and the Son that is unbreakable, that is not lesser. The Son, there was not a time where Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son, even before he was Jesus of Nazareth, there was not a time where he was not. And I find, unfortunately, that a lot of Christians fall into this problem of thinking that in the extreme eternity past, it was just God the Father. And then he made God the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then they together created the heavens and the earth. That is not true. Scripture does not bear such a thing out. In fact, it condemns it quite vividly. It doesn't matter how far you go back into the eternal past, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The theological way of describing that is that Jesus, excuse me, I got to use the terms, that God the Son was eternally begotten of the Father. There was not a time where he wasn't. There was not a place where the Father was and the Son wasn't. No, no, no. This has been the relationship, the role, and the interaction between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit since before anything else is even time itself. Whatever it is that the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Can you imagine that perspective? What man, what prophet, what good man, what man sent from God to take all of those things that the witnesses have seen so far? What kind of man could take into his knowledge and into his mind every single thing that the Father is doing. There isn't a man that can do this. Sometimes we like to imagine that if God gave us all the answers about how our life is going, we would then appreciate what God is doing. I'm going to go ahead and challenge us on that for just a moment. If God showed you absolutely everything about your life, you would not understand a minute of it. It is too intertwined with contingencies that are based on everybody else's life. It shows up when suffering comes along our path, doesn't it? What's the one question everyone asks as soon as something scary and unpredicted happens? Why? 
Friends, that's not, that's not something, one, that we can know, and two, are owed to know. Even if you think you know, you are wrong. There are too many effects. There are too many things that carry on in this life. It is to the Son only that that is fully understood. Not you, not me. And so when we think about the life of the church, when we think about our own existence, pursuing the why question is by definition an unfulfilling task. It will not lead to more faith. It will lead to more frustrations. I don't mean it's wrong to ask. I mean it's wrong to only ask without dependence upon Christ. This is why faith is not only so central, but is central to the Christian walk. We cannot continue on without it. We cannot somehow come up with a a valid explanation for why certain things have occurred in our life that distress us. Losses, sufferings, sicknesses. You will not find joy at the end of the why question, even if God answered you. That's not me coming up with that. That's Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Habakkuk is even asking God. It's actually one of my favorite of the minor prophets because he has the audacity to come up to God and ask him why. Why are you doing this? He was so frustrated because he sees all the tribes in the world that seemingly have this this purposeless suffering in their life. And he asks God, why have you made men like grasshoppers? They're here one day. Swept away by wind the next. They come, they live, they die. What's the purpose? None of them serve you. Do you know what God says? Paul uses God's response as the backbone of the book of Romans. You know what? I want you to see it. Turn to Habakkuk chapter 2. It's a good passage for you to know. If you have trouble finding it, it's right before Habakkuk 3. You're welcome. It's after Nahum. Hope that helps. After the book of Nahum. The rustling of pages has stopped. I'm impressed. Habakkuk chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. Look at this response. Habakkuk finishes off his question that comes from the, from the first chapter, and he says, I will take my stand at my watch post. Basically, I've asked the question, now I'm going to sit and wait for an answer. Uh, let's see, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what God will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he who runs may read it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time and it hastens to the end, it will not lie If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. Here's God's response. Behold, his soul is puffed up and it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor and an arrogant man who who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and all princes. And he expresses to him over the next chapter he expounds on this idea that 
It is not by understanding these things which makes the soul puffed up. It is by it is by righteous faithfulness and dependence upon God that you shall actually live. The question of why is fully unfulfilling. And as Habakkuk learns, God expresses to him, this will not lead to any blessing for you to understand these things. In fact, he says at a later point, even if I told you, you wouldn't believe me. Let your, let your humility hear that for a minute. Even if I told you why, you would not believe me. So why is it we keep asking that question? Sometimes we feel like we have nothing else to do. If the suffering is of great amount, we're out of turn. It is something that can unsettle our feet and imagine that it is because of the solidity of the ground that we're walking on that we can't stand straight. And so if we look down and find out that we are standing on the rock of Jesus Christ, if we do not understand these things, we may think it is because he is not stable ground to stand on. And what we are learning is our lack of understanding why things happen is not due to Christ not being sufficient. It is due to us not being perspective enough because we are human, because we are not God. It is often in the midst of our suffering that we are told all things work together for good. The quote comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It is often misquoted completely out of context. It is not to say if something bad happens, don't worry, give it a year, give it two years, give it five years, you'll understand. No, you won't. No, you won't. The good that God is talking about in that passage is eternal salvation that is untouched by the sufferings of this world. God works all things together for good because at the end of our road, whatever suffering, whatever persecution, whatever death, it ends at the salvation of our good God. That is why Peter expresses to the church that he writes to and he says, what is our focus on these things? Commit yourself to doing good. And when you come to your grave, commit your soul to your faithful creator while doing good. He does not say, reason through it and you will have some answers. My friends, we are all going to die without the answers. Prepare yourself for that now. Prepare yourself by, for that now by depending on Christ, who, as he says, has every single answer, every contingency, every purpose, every intention of God's pure heart. And what does he express to us about this? Not only is this just stating that he is equal with God, it is saying that what he is doing is by very definition godly. And so what are we learning from what he is doing? That there is an enjoyment in what he brings to our life. That was the whole purpose of the turning water to wine. And as we go through the signs, we're going to see more and more of this. What was the purpose for which he came back and healed someone's son? 
who is on the brink of death because there is a sickness that he is here to heal. As the great physician, we're learning more and more about him. What is the purpose for which he heals the man who is paralyzed? Because like him, we have no ability in ourselves. What is the purpose for which he feeds the 5,000 here in the next chapter? It is because we have need for the bread from heaven because we cannot be sustained by anything in this life. What is the purpose of healing the man born blind? Because in order to be healed, we must be able to see what God has promised. What is the purpose for him raising Lazarus from the dead? Because like him, we all are dead in trespasses and sins, and only the answer for resurrection lies with him. And as he expresses to them here, it is fully and thoroughly dependent on his authority, his nature, and his personhood. It is not the Father that will be on the cross, and it is not the Holy Spirit that will be on the cross. It is the Son. And therefore, our salvation looks to him. It doesn't mean that we don't worship the Father. We certainly do. It does not mean that we do not worship the Holy Spirit. We certainly do. It means that in order to be saved, in order to be raised from the dead, in order to have joy in the midst of not knowing why, one must trust on Christ and thereby trust in the Father and in the Holy Spirit. We must believe on his name and live. What does his name bring? The Father loves the Son. And so he looks at them, he says, you Jews who claim to love the Father, do you love the Son? The Father does. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. You've marveled at what little things I've shown you. Greater works than these Will the Father show the Son so that you may marvel? For as the Father raises the dead, now imagine this, this has not occurred in his miracles yet. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he will. Now he's going to show this in signs, isn't he? Raising Lazarus from the dead. In the other Gospels, the widow's son in Nain, Jairus' daughter. It doesn't happen often, but when he does, it was a foreshadowing of what things were to come. Just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whomever he will. For the father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the son. Imagine coming up and trying to bring a case against the judge of all creation. And what, what he is pointing out is that is exactly where the Jews were standing that were talking to him. The father is not the one judging. He's given that to me. And you're coming at me and talking to me about your rules on the Sabbath. My friends, my father is working and I am working. You're going to come to me. The father has given me all judgment. Not only do you not have any the Father has given it all to me, and you're coming against me with your pitiful judgments. The purpose of giving all of this to the Son, that's why his role is there as the receiver and the applicator of these things, is that all may honor the Son. Verse 23, 
just as they honor the Father. You say, that seems a little sleight of hand. What, what if a Jewish person was, was honoring the Father and they just got Jesus' identity wrong? Not possible. Not possible. It wasn't dependent upon what they saw. It was dependent on God who reveals. Watch this. When Jesus was a baby, before he had done any miracles, before he said any words, before he could even walk, did people know who he was? Very few did, didn't they? Why was it they knew these things? Because God revealed these things. Look at the words of Simeon. Simeon says that now I can depart in peace. Why? Because he had seen Jesus as a baby. And the father had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he saw with his own eyes the salvation and the consolation of Israel. And he was able to identify him without works and without words. Remarkable things that certain individuals were gifted to, but were there is an expression of what it was to actually follow the Father and live at the time that the Son shows up. A difficult transition that revealed the hearts of many. Why is it the Father has given all these things, but that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father who sent him? And what does he say? Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has, and I want you to see this past tense, he has passed from death to life. He is not talking about physical resurrection he is talking about the present reality of living in service to God Almighty. You have already passed from death to life. And in the great questions of why, we are given the answers as to why God even did this. It was for his glory. It was for his kingdom. It was the purpose for which he made this world, that he may be glorified through it. Not much unlike when somebody paints a great picture and then signs their name at the bottom. The point is, this is my handiwork. This is what I have done and what my hand has accomplished. Think of it this way for all of reality and all of history with God. This is what my hand has done and what I have accomplished. What does knowing that we have passed from death to life do for us? That's a fine promise. A marvelous one at that. But as we go about our lives, how does that interact with us? What does it do? You have to go to the grocery store just like everyone else, unless you have your groceries delivered to you or someone else in your house shops for you or whatnot. You have to do the normal things, fill your car up with gas and go to doctor's appointments and carry on. It's not like having the ability to pray, somehow you don't have to go to doctor's appointments. You still do these things. And on the outside, it looks a whole lot like the rest of the world as far as just the normal things of life. And so what is Christ talking about that we have passed from death to life? Don't we continue to eat and drink so that we may not die? We see the doctor for the same reason, don't we? Why do we carry on? 
how do we carry on? I don't know how many of you have ever listened to country music. I did when I was growing up and, and certainly uh, loved it. I remember this one song that um, the lyrics of it had, uh, everyone wants to go to heaven, but ain't no one want to go now. You know that reality? And, and he, he was expressing this reality that it seems that everyone talks about this, but nobody really knows why we don't want to go now. Can I afford you an answer? This life is already the eternal life that we are promised. Yet it still carries with it the death from this world. Let me unpack that for a second. As we live this life, we live it under the promises that this is not all that matters. It means that as we interact with this gorgeous world that we live in, that has so many effects of the fall throughout it, animals that try to kill humans, which is a complete reversal of the whole purpose. Humans that try to kill animals. I see you smiling back there, Ralph. We, we have so many aspects of the world that have, have flipped upside down. Betrayals of relationships that should not exist. Things that should not happen. Realities of things that should we have no promises past the grave, would and should unseat our concepts of this being worth it. And this is what God expresses to us here as he's walking around in Palestine back 2,000 years ago. It is the Father who knows all of these things, and he has shown them all to the Father, whatever he is doing and why he is doing them. That's not for us to understand or know. It is for us to depend upon Christ who knows all these things. I had to face the near loss of my daughter two and a half years ago, and I can tell you this, that is not a place I would wish anybody, foe or friend alike, ever have to pass through. It is a horrific thing to have to face that reality. It is a horrific thing to have to question that understanding. And I know some of you have even experienced that already, and my heart breaks to even understand that. There is no why that you and I could ever conceive. There is a who that walks with us. No matter how horrific our lives get, my friends, it does end at good, but that good do not expect to see this side of the grave. You will get whispers of it, bits of it, pieces of it. Some days will be beautiful. I know when we were talking about things that we were seeing that God has worked, when we talked about all the positive things of life, the beautiful days and the, uh, and the encouragement from other Christians and things like that. These are wonderful things. But understand that from the hand of the Lord, both good and evil come. And he walks with us through them all. And if we do not see that on the horizon, the promises of God will always win we will simply become resentful of a God who knew about it, at least, and did nothing to stop it. Do not grow resentful in your hearts, my friends. Grow dependent on Christ. For as we look at all of these things that can come across and destroy us, realize that the one that we are trusting in is not the servant to God Almighty. He is God Almighty. 
not only knows all things, but bears with us through all things, travels with us through all things. His very name, Emmanuel, shows us that regardless of where we go, God is with us. Even at the times that will tempt our metal. Since Christ is equal with God, when you see the Savior of the world taking upon himself your sin, realize that that is the one who made you, that we turned against, that we despised and rejected, and yet he loved us to save us and give us these great promises. Do not take your sufferings and become despondent and resentful. No. Take your sufferings and realize how deep the Father's love for us. This is one of the reasons why I love the Gospels. It makes us interact with the way Jesus thinks without overly teaching things. But as we go to another place in Scripture, Romans chapter 8, which talks about these aspects, he teaches them straightforward. And he expresses to us, you want to know about the glories that we will one day see? It is not that our sufferings compared to those glories really don't really measure up and the glories are bigger. No, what he says is, our sufferings are not worthy to be compared to that glory. Paul, in writing to the church in Corinth, says, why is it certain sufferings come along our path? He doesn't fully address. What he does say is that the effect of our sufferings is that they prepare us piece by piece for the glory that will be revealed to us. Do you know, dear Christian, that it is a grace to suffer? as a Christian. Do you know that? I don't know how you get on if you don't know that. It is a grace to suffer as a Christian because there is a particular perspective inside of glory that you personally will see that others will not here and most definitely there. Do not think that the victorious Christian life is the one that suffers not and only sees good times and ease. No, no. That's one of the weakest Christian lives. One of the strongest Christian lives is to understand that there is suffering at the core of this earth and that all things need to be made new. And I will walk with Christ no matter the cost and where it takes me. And I will see firsthand the one I have never seen, I will see his dependability. I look back at my journals from the time that I was anticipating at any moment the death of my daughter. And there I see me reacting to the presence of God in a way I had never seen before. And expressing, I always thought, and I remember writing this, I always thought that James, at the beginning of James, was promising when he expresses, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, for the testing of your faith produces patience. And I said, I always, I always assumed that the testing of your faith, you just realigned your expectations for the future and just got more pessimistic, and therefore it led you to more patience. And I said, how wrong was I to assume that it was that simple? 
No, the reality is that the testing of our faith produces patience because when our faith is tested, there we see the presence of God in a way that we couldn't see otherwise. And seeing the presence of God alone makes us patient for the day when it will not be the exception, but the rule. We look forward to that day, not because it will be ease and comfort, but because we will be in the presence of him who lives forever. There is no promise that this world can make you. There's no promise. You're, I don't know if you're getting calls or texts constantly from every politician making you every promise known to man. They're all garbage. Why? By definition, they're of this realm, and this realm kills us. And as Jesus says here, if you believe on him whom the Father sent, you have already passed from death to life. We live in that victory. We do not seek victory. We live in it already. It is something that Christ has done, is doing, and will never cease to do because he is not taking Sabbath days off. The Father is working, and so is Christ. And therefore, my friends, your salvation does not take a vacation, and it is not up for question, debate, or challenge. If God is for us, who can be against us? It is God who justifies. Who is left to condemn? God is with us. God is with us. God is with us. Know it at the heart of who you are. Let's pray. Our Father, as we see Christ and as we come through the rest of the Gospel of John and see his teaching, see him crucified and risen from the dead. May we delight in these promises and the strength of what it is to know him, even if we have been walking with him for many decades, the strength of depending upon him in both times of ease and time of difficulty, because all these things will display for us the realities of who he is and who we are living inside his promises. We thank you, Father, that you are with us. We thank you that you show all things to the Son and that he, being glorified by us, gives glory to you. We thank you, Father, that in Christ, as he came and was born as one of us, born under the law, to redeem us out from underneath the law that we may walk in the newness of life. We thank you that his sacrifice is what we think about, that his crucifixion is what we preach, and that his word is what we depend upon. We pray, Father, we challenge our hearts with the words of Christ that we may believe on his name and live even today, having passed from death to life. We thank you for these many and great promises we pray as the days grow darker or lighter, you guide our steps and you guide our desires. We pray even more in your son's name.